Let's open our Bibles again to 2 Peter 1, just to make a quick survey of those last six verses there to make sure we understand all they said to us. Most of you know that, but remember, there are children and youth in this assembly, and we want them established in it. And if that isn't a good enough reason to you for me repeating myself, then I hope verses 12 through 15 of 2 Peter 1 are a good enough reason. Peter said that as long as he was alive, he would continue to repeat these things, though they were established in them, that as long as he was alive, he would continue to remind them so that after he was gone, they would always have those things in remembrance. And that is why I do what I do most of the time. Second Peter 1, verses 16 through 21. I hope you understand that the apostles were very different from most religious teachers in that they were not presenting cunningly devised fables like the meteor that is in Mecca that the Muslims trek to. It's not some black stone from God. It's just a meteor. And on the way there, they think that they're going to chase the devil away, and there's a few killed every year in the stampede of trying to get rid of the devil and so forth and so on. It's amazing. And the stories that charismatics come up with of having visions of Jesus when Paul said that he was the last one to see Jesus. You know, they all want to call themselves apostles in the charismatic churches, like Apostle Ron Carpenter of the World Redemption Center here in Greenville. And yet, Paul said he was the last one to see Jesus. Because to be an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ, you have had to have seen to be an eyewitness of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. Because that was a doctrine that they taught that Without having been an eyewitness of it, who would believe fishermen from Galilee? And Ron Carpenter's never done any of the miracles that the apostles did on a daily basis. No handkerchief from him is going to help you one bit. You would just want to hope that he didn't use it before you bought it. And whatever. We want, to, we want to humble ourselves before the Word of God and what it tells us right here, that when the apostles made known the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and declared that doctrine that is in these two epistles and throughout the New Testament, they had some corroborating evidence. Matthew, Mark, and Luke didn't have it firsthand. Peter had it firsthand because Peter was with Jesus in the Holy Mount. Peter saw and Peter heard and Peter put it down in writing. But Peter went on to say in that 19th verse, we have also a more sure word of prophecy. There is something more certain. There is something more trustworthy that you can rely on than the experience that Peter had, which puts in the shade every other so-called experience that any other man or woman has ever had. Yet, he would say, the written scriptures are superior. And that's what we want to be established in, and I hope those words, the more sure word, grip many of you. Does the Bible say anything like this elsewhere? Let's take a little tour for a few minutes. How about Psalm 93 and verse 5? Turn in your Bibles with me to Psalm 93 and verse 5. This is how Paul preached. He would quote from one place and say, the Holy Ghost saith, and again, and again, and he would tie verses together, and I want to show you that this is the common theme. Psalm 93 and verse 5, thy testimonies are very sure. Holiness becometh thine house O Lord, forever. Thy testimonies are very sure. What God has testified 
about the origin of all things, about His existence, about His name, about our salvation, about heaven, about how to live, they're very sure. Thank you, Lord. Look at Psalm 19, which we often sing. Psalm 19 and the seventh verse. Psalm 19, 7, the law of the Lord is perfect. Converting the soul. Perfect's pretty good. That's pretty sure. The testimony of the Lord is sure. Making wise the simple. If you were reading things you couldn't trust, if you were reading things that changed often, if you were reading things that were uncertain, then they wouldn't convert your soul and they wouldn't give you wisdom. They'd leave you confused. But thy testimonies are sure. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. Look at Psalm 111. You say you're in the Psalms a lot right now. That was why I made the point to you earlier today that if you want to be like David, you're going to love God's words. Psalm 111, verse 7, The works of His hands are verity and judgment. Verity is truthfulness. The works of His hands are verity and judgment. All His commandments are sure. So while Peter said it's more sure, it's because the Word of God is sure. But the Word of God, as being certain of what it says, is more certain than if you came down from the Mount of Transfiguration and tried to convince us that you had really seen what you saw up there. See, we have it in writing from God Himself. We don't really care what you saw in the Mount of Transfiguration because the Word of God is better than that. Because it's in writing. More to say on that in a moment. The Scripture is described as faithful, which is another synonym for being sure. Look, turn over a few pages to Psalm 119, where we have 176 statements made about the Word of God. And let's look at a couple of them and the faithfulness of God's Word. Verse 86, all thy commandments are faithful. You can trust them. There's no lie in the Word of God. Look at verse 138. Thy testimonies that thou hast commanded are righteous and very faithful. The Word of God declares that about itself. And David declares that. There's nothing impure or false in the Bible. Where's our favorite verse in this chapter? It's verse 128, and it's a theme verse for this church. Therefore, I esteem all thy precepts concerning all things to be right, and I hate every false way. That is something that is very sure. When you have a book that no matter what subjects, subject it is dealing with, and it deals with many subjects, it is always right. And it is so right that it makes you hate everything that is contrary to the Bible. This is a theme verse of this church. This is what this church believes And this is a verse that every child ought to learn early. This is a verse that every minister ought to value highly. Therefore, I esteem, I value and put a priority upon all of God's precepts concerning all things, and they are always right. And I hate every false way. That's the faithfulness of God's Word, and there's nothing false in it. The false ways are outside God's Word. There's only truth in God's Word. Look at Psalm 19. You say, well, these are obvious points. Well, why are they in the Bible then if they're so obvious? Maybe you're smarter than God. But I don't think so. Why are they in the Bible? 
to encourage us that we have a book that is true. So that when we're facing questions of how should I train my children? How can I revive my marriage? How should I work on the job? What should be my attitude toward the IRS? There's answers. Amen. I believe everything the Bible has to say. I don't care if Dr. Robert Atkins came up with a very effective diet. Being a cardiologist, he knew that America was addicted to carbohydrates, and so he came up with a diet that is very effective by getting carbohydrates out of your diet since we are obsessed and addicted to them. And all of the adult-onset diabetes that we're having is another reflection of it. And in many other reflections, the obesity is carbohydrates. However, no matter how many good arguments and good studies that I have read by Dr. Atkins or by others who are proving his theories about carbohydrates, I do know that a diet ought to have bread in it. Now, if, if for a short period of time you want to get rid of those things, get rid of carbohydrates to get over your addiction to carbohydrates and to shed a lot of body fat faster than any other diet, it works very effectively. However, the Bible says the Lord made wine to make glad the heart of man, but before the, man, the man's heart can be glad, he made bread to make strong the heart of man. And so every time we look at anything, we've got to look at it through the eyes of Scripture. Now, how far am I going to take this idea that's different than God's Word? Because God's Word is true. You, you've turned with me to 19.9. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. That sounds like more sure, very sure, very faithful because they're all together righteous and they are true. The truth in the Bible is never going to change or be lost. Look at verse 19. The fear of the Lord is clean, but what does it say about that clean fear? It endures forever. So God's Word endures forever. It's our job to find it. And how do we find it? Well, you can go to the website and look up proving the King James Bible. Why do we believe the King James Bible? Because of faith in the promises of God to preserve His Word, fruit that has followed this Word, the facts of its internal consistency, and the fools that try to mock it. And through those four rules that the Bible teaches us about God's Word, we know that this is it. Because God's blessed this Bible for 400 years to change more lives in more ways than all the other translations put together squared. The other translations have come along with the complete demise of Christianity in this country. It's the churches that are out there that are inventing new things every week in order to keep the unregenerate and carnally minded members coming through the door in their sandals and beach attire that have changed the Word of God and that are, come, that are using the new versions every week. It doesn't change. God's Word doesn't change. We just need to look for it and find it. And do you know how blessed you are to have it in your language? You don't need to learn another language to have God's Word because it's in your language. Amen. Did you enjoy the verses from Luke chapter 1? And we should turn there again because whether you enjoyed them or not, I want to read them to you again, but I hope you enjoyed them. Do you remember how Luke opened up the first of his two letters to Theophilus and the confidence with which he spoke about the things of the gospel? 
the gospel record that Jesus of Nazareth was virgin born, the record that Jesus could take a small boy's a lunch, a boy's small lunch, a lad, and feed a multitude, that he could raise the dead, that he himself rose from the dead in the time period that he promised before he was even put to death. Look what Luke has to say in these first four verses, and this is why it's called the more sure word of prophecy. Forasmuch, because, as many have taken in hand to set forth in order a declaration of those things which are most surely believed among us, even as they delivered them unto us, which from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word, it seemed good to me also, having had perfect understanding of all things from the very first, to write unto thee in order, most excellent Theophilus, that thou mightest know the certainty of those things wherein thou hast been instructed. This Greek named Theophilus had heard the things of the gospel, and Luke wanted to write another report in addition to Matthew, Mark, and John for him to know those things most surely believed, verse 1, because they were eyewitnesses that wrote them down, verse 2, because Luke said he had perfect understanding of all things. You say that's arrogance. No, it isn't arrogance. That's what a man talks like when God's inspired him. That's what Elihu sounded like in Job 32 when he finally corrected four old men that didn't know what they were talking about. That's how they sound. You know what Elihu said? He that is perfect in knowledge is with you. Now here's a 30-year-old guy. Let's, let's say he's 30. He might have been 13. But let's say he was 30 and there's these four 90-year-old men sitting around the campfire all wrong. They've been philosophizing for... 29 chapters, and along comes Elihu and says, He that is perfect in knowledge is with you. He says, There is a spirit in man, and the inspiration of the Almighty giveth them understanding. Now, you don't have that spirit in you to give you understanding the same way he gave it to Elihu, because you have it in writing. We have something better. And we should never apologize, nor sound toast, nor effeminate, nor say, Well, I think, well, it could be, well, it might be. Who wants to hear any of that stuff? The Bible never talks like that at all. And as long as we've put our time of studying in and we've been very thorough and we've followed the Bible rules of hermeneutics, then we should declare the Word of God just like Luke does here. The beloved physician, what was his training? Did he go to seminary? Are you kidding? He was a medical doctor. But who would he spend his time with? A tent maker? Paul. Now that's a blessing. Well, how do we get to spend time with Paul as a minister? I'll read the 13 chapters of three pastoral epistles that tell me how I ought to behave myself in the house of God. Who's going to tell me differently or better? Or any other minister that might hear this. Gird up your loins. Neglect not the gift that is in thee. Give thyself wholly to reading, to exhortation and doctrine. And trust Paul, who gave everything that he taught publicly to Timothy, who in turn gave it to faithful men, who would be able to teach others also. That thou mightest know the certainty of those things in which thou hast been instructed. Thank you, Lord, for statements like this. The Word of God is so sure that you know what Jesus Christ said at the end of this whole book? He said, if you take away from the words of the prophecy of this book, your part in the book of life is going to be taken away. 
if you add to the words that are written in this book, then I'm going to add to you all the plagues that are described in this book. Now, is that pretty serious about the Word of God and its words? And out comes some new paraphrase. The message. The NIV, a dynamic equivalent translation. Meaning we take the words of God, churn them through our brains, and come up with new words. That's what dynamic equivalent means. A paraphrase is we're writing a novel about the Bible. That's what the word paraphrase means. And they change the words of God. How does every translation, the NIV, the New American Standard Version, the English Standard Version, the Holman Christian Bible, the New Century Version, all those versions, why in Hebrews 4, 5 did they say, they shall not enter into my rest or they shall never enter into my rest? When the argument in the verse is, if they shall enter into his rest. And in verse 6, Paul argues from that possibility that men can enter in. And he gets to the end of that his section of arguing there, and he says in Hebrews 4.11, there remaineth therefore a rest to the people of God. How do we know that there's still a rest left to the people of God in the days of the Apostle Paul? Because of the word if written in Psalm 95. But their Bibles don't even have the word if in Hebrews 4 or 5. They've taken away words and they've added words. Some ignorantly, many arrogantly, and all profanely to mess with God's word. Look at John 10.35. Do verses like this light you up? John 10.35. When I was in banking, and I've told you this before, I like to carry two Bibles with me, an NIV and a King James Bible, so that I could find a Christian that wanted to go to lunch. And I'd even buy his lunch as long as he would spend a little bit of time and let this verse haunt him. From John 10 and verse 34 and 35, Jesus is defending himself against the Jews who accused him of blasphemy for saying that he was the Son of God. How did Jesus defend himself? He appealed to Scripture. How did Jesus defend himself against the devil when he was tempted 40 days and 40 nights? What are the three words that he kept saying over and over? It is written. Did the Lord, could the Lord Jesus Christ have reasoned with the devil and out-reasoned him? He was out-reasoning the doctors of the law when he was 12 years old. Could he have out-reasoned the devil? He didn't try to out-reason the devil. He appealed to the more sure word of prophecy. It is written three times. Well, here's does the same thing. Jesus answered them, Is it not written? In your law, I said, ye are gods. Does it say that in the Bible? It says that over in the book of Psalms. I said, ye are gods. And here's the Lord Jesus Christ reasoning from Scripture. If he called them gods unto whom the word of God came, and the Scripture cannot be broken, say ye of him whom the Father hath sanctified and sent into the world, thou blasphemest, because I said, I am the Son of God? He turned their word on them and he gave us a little point for this sermon. He turned the word on them. David had the word of God come to him. David was just a writer for the Lord. But David wrote down that the rulers of Israel had a title called gods. The rulers of Israel were, were gods, little g. When, you, when you're reading the book of Psalms and you, and you find David wanting to praise God and fulfill his vows before the gods, 
He isn't talking about doing it before the idol of Buddha. He's not talking about going to a Chinese restaurant, getting a fortune cookie, and blessing God in front of that fat-bellied Buddha. He isn't talking about going to Egypt and praising God before their foolish, profane gods. He's talking about opening his mouth in an assembly of his cabinet before the gods of Israel and declaring the truth of God to the highest men in his nation. So Jesus reasons with them that it says God's in the Bible and David was only a man that the word of God came to and I'm a whole lot more than David ever imagined being and I call myself a son of God and you want to call me a blasphemer and David's calling himself a God? And the other men around him? You're messed up. But that's not my point right now. I've preached John 10 before. Right now my point is this. Scripture cannot be broken. Amen. So when I take an NIV or a New American Standard Version or any version you want to pick, I'll let you pick and they have a different man killing Goliath in 2 Samuel 21 and verse 19, then I just wanted to ask a person, did I just break your Bible? Of course I broke their Bible. Because the, Jesus Christ was so confident at the word level of the Bible that He said it has the word God's back there in the book of Psalms, and the Scripture can't be broken, meaning that's the word that should be there. Right. So we don't change the word God's to be rulers, or anything else, because we need that internal integrity in the Bible so that it says God's over here, so Jesus is quoting the Bible correctly, and then he tells us the argument that he's drawing from it. You know, when the King James Bible says that the promises were made to Abraham and his seed in Galatians chapter 3, when you go back and look at the promises made to Abraham, it better say seed. Now you pick up a new King James Bible, And it says the promises were made to Abraham and his seed, singular, in Galatians 3.16. But when you go back and read Genesis chapter 12 to Genesis chapter 24, and you read all the promises made to Abraham, it says to Abraham and his descendants. What? What does that say about that that book? Just a money-making idea of Thomas Nelson Publishers. They don't care one bit about the Word of God. They sell Catholic Bibles right beside the New King James Bible. They couldn't give a rip about the words of God. They don't care. They want to make money from people who buy Bibles. Everybody picks their market niche, and Thomas Nelson picked theirs. But look what the Bible says right here about the word God's. That is the right word because Scripture can't be broken, and it can be argued from the individual words. I've been through these points before, but I want you to love the Word of God. And when you read a verse and there's a word in it that gives you trouble then you just better make that word fit and figure it out yourself because the trouble's with you, not the Word of God. God didn't make a mistake calling rulers gods. You have a mistake in not appreciating the rightful place of authority and that God ordained authority and every power, every, the powers that be are ordained of God. And so if you resist the power, you resist God Himself. So calling them gods, does that make sense to you? Of course it does, and it should. Lord, thank you. Every word of God is pure, and man must live by every one of them. Look at Luke 4, 4. Do you know that the Bible says that? Every word of God. It's more sure. Oh, thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Luke 4, 4. And Jesus answered him, saying, It is written that man shall not live by bread alone. Now, if you've got an NIV, that's all it says. Should I keep reading? Is the rest worth it? And Jesus answered him, saying, It is written that man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word of God. Every word of God is necessary for us. Jesus argued from every word of God. I just showed you where he argued from the single word God. Thank you, Lord, for your Bible. Amen. 
Look at Proverbs chapter 8. Let's just pile up the Bible verses about the Bible being more sure than anything else, including being on the Mount of Transfiguration with James and John and Moses and Elijah and seeing Jesus transfigured and hearing a voice from the excellent glory of God the Father, giving Him honor and glory. Proverbs chapter 8 and verse 6, these are the words of wisdom. The Bible's a book of wisdom. This applies to everything written in the Bible. Proverbs chapter 8 and verse 6, Hear, hear, for I will speak of excellent things, and the opening of my lips shall be right things. For my mouth shall speak truth, and wickedness is an abomination to my lips. All the words of my mouth are in righteousness. There is nothing forward or perverse in them. They are all plain to him that understandeth, and right to them that find knowledge. See, it's the man with some knowledge that can figure them all out so that they look right. It's the skeptic that comes to the Bible and finds apparent contradictions in it. There's no contradictions in the Bible. The contradictions are just our ignorance. We need to just learn a little bit more and read it a little bit further, and we'll be able to figure it out. Lord, and help us to figure out the things that we can't by our own reading and study. Open thou mine eyes to behold wondrous things out of thy law, and I will in turn teach them to every one that I can. Thank you, Lord, that there's nothing forward or perverse in the Word of God. Look at 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses that some of you may have memorized, but verses nonetheless that are important for this study. There's no harm done in having them heaped up in your mind. And maybe something that you've heard before that didn't grab you the first time will grab you the second time. Right, Jerry? Or grab you the third time or the fourth time or the fifth time you've heard it. Something. The Lord is able to make the Word of God new to you every time you read it and every time you hear it. He's able to bring something out that you'll say, wow, I never saw that before. Sometimes I say that about my own outlines, and that's really scary, but I bless the God of heaven. That is scary, but I'm I'm just thankful. I'll I'll yell to Sherry to come in my office, and I'll say, who in the world said that? God gets all the glory. All the glory. I'm telling you that my mind is so weak I can't remember what I've taught. That isn't taking any glory. It's just saying, wow, thank you, Lord, for showing us something. Right. Look at this. Paul to Timothy. This is the antidote to the perilous times of the last days. Oh, if I could get every Christian that even professes to care about their religion to understand that from chapter 3, verse 1... To chapter 4, verse 4, is a 21-verse lesson with one subject. The perilous times of the last days. When Christians would compromise with the world. And they would be carnally minded and effeminate and weak and unthankful and unholy. And lovers of pleasure more than lovers of God. And having a form of godliness but denying the power thereof and everything else that it lists. Here's the cure. The cure is my three-word job description in the first part of verse 2 of chapter 4. Preach the Word. But what Word is that? It's the inspired Word. So we come back to chapter 3, verse 16. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be unsure of himself and start quoting from commentators, Calvinists, and seminarians. No, that the man of God may be perfect, truly furnished 
unto all good works. Amen. Scripture, it's inspired by God. Holy men of God were moved by the Holy Ghost, 2 Peter 1.21. And it's profitable for doctrine, that's teaching, for reproof, telling you you're wrong, for correction, telling you you're wrong again. How's that? That doesn't sound like a very positive preaching style. And instruction in righteousness, telling you what to do to please God, to be righteous in His eyes. That the man of God, the minister, with the Word of God, may be perfect. He's complete, full, he's got everything he needs. He doesn't need a massive library. He needs the 66 books that are found in this library, and he needs to give himself wholly to reading, exhortation, and doctrine based on that. Truly furnished. Truly, not partly. Not temporarily, truly furnished unto all good works. Not some good works, but all of them. Thank you, Lord. What a text. The noble Bereans are called noble in Acts chapter 17 and verse 11 because when they heard the Apostle Paul preach, what did they do? Did they believe they had something more sure than a man who could raise the dead? Could Paul raise the dead? Did they know the the reputation of his hankies? Yes. What did they do with the Apostle Paul's preaching? Search the Scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Because they knew they had the more sure word. Thank you, Lord. What's the Bible more sure in? I can tell you it's more sure than your feelings. Feelings come from your heart, and your heart's the most deceitful thing you'll ever meet. He that trusteth in his own heart's a fool, the Bible says. The Bible's more sure than your thoughts, and my job is to destroy your thoughts. My job, every minister's job, every minister's job is to make warfare. I'm in the pulpit with the sword of the Spirit, and I'm supposed to come after you and tear down your strongholds and rip away every thought and imagination that raises its ugly head against the knowledge of God. That's That's 2 Corinthians 10, 4 through 6. That's what ministers are supposed to do. Ministers are not supposed to entertain with lots of stories. Ministers are not supposed to have books on their shelves called McKnight's 10,000 Sermon Illustrations. I've never read it. I never will read it. I'll burn every copy I get my hands on. I don't care about any one of those stories in there. I don't care if it jerks tears out of every woman's eyes. I don't tell you stories about when I went fishing. I only mentioned my mother a few minutes ago because she was here last Mother's Day and she's not here today and I'm thankful for a mother that taught me to love this book. Thoughts. It's my job to tear down your thoughts. Every man thinketh that his own way is right in his own eyes, but the Lord pondereth the hearts. More than tradition, Jesus said, because you're honoring your tradition, you've rejected the Word of God in Matthew chapter 15. The majority, Jesus said, when something is highly esteemed by all men, it's an abomination to God. That's what God thinks of majorities. How about a minority? How about noble men? Well, there was a minority that gathered around a campfire in the days of Elihu, Four very noble men, very wise men. Maybe the four wisest men on earth at that time. And Elihu was better than all four of them put together and given a space of time to work up their philosophy. Because David would say in Psalm 119, 100, that he had more understanding than the ancients. More than any enemy you'll ever have, you can have the word of God. David fed himself in the word of God, and King Saul was petrified of David. Because he knew that the Lord was with David, and David behaved himself wisely before all his people. David knew what to do at every turn. Do you know that David knew what to do when he came to the tabernacle with his men? They were hungry after running for three days, and there was that showbread that only the priests could eat. How did he know what to do? How did David know he could make sandwiches out of that showbread? Because he fed himself in the Word of God, and the Word of God says that God honors mercy more than sacrifice. 
Oh, to be like David. And poor King Saul, he didn't know what to do. Everything David did was right, and the whole nation loved him, and his name was much set by. Every, every family sat down at supper and talked about David did this, and David did that, and poor King Saul. You know what he should have done? He should have promoted David to his right hand and made him the second most important man in the kingdom, or the first, and Saul could have been second. Right. I've heard that Samuel went to Bethlehem and anointed you to be king. Listen, can I be your right-hand man? Would that be foolish? Are you kidding? That would have been wisdom. Nobody would have served him better than David. Right. The Bible's more sure than any teacher like David taught us. You know, the Levites and the priests should have told David, don't you dare move that Ark of the Covenant on a new ox cart. We know your heart is good. We know you're the sweet psalmist of Israel. We know that you love the Lord your God and you delight in Him. But don't you dare move that, uh, that Ark of the Covenant that way. And so David came back the next time and he told them, because you didn't fo- we didn't follow according to the due order, we will do it right this time. David right. took charge over his own teachers who, have, who should have taught him. That's First Chronicles 15, 13, about moving the Ark of the Covenant. Oh, there's so many more things. How about dreams? Look at Jeremiah 23. Zach, I know you know this text, but does everyone else in here know it? Yeah. I know Newell knows it. Anybody else know it? Right. Jer- I know Matthew knows it. Jeremiah 23. Do you know that a Baptist minister in this country is forever memorialized because he stood in Washington and said, I have a dream. He was an anarchist. He was a plagiarist. He was a serial whoremonger. And he corrupted the office of a Baptist minister. And his name is Martin Luther King Jr. And I despise him if you hadn't picked up. Jeremiah 23, 28, the prophet that hath a dream. Let him tell a dream. And he that hath my word, let him speak my word faithfully. What is the chaff to the wheat, saith the Lord? Is not my word like as a fire, saith the Lord, and like a hammer that breaketh the rock in pieces? That's what the word of God in preaching it should be like. A fire that burns away everything that is wrong and a hammer that smashes in pieces everything that is wrong. And if a man wants to get up and tell dreams, then tell him. Jesse Duplantis, if you want to tell your dreams. Betty, if you want to tell your dreams, tell him. But, oh, Lord God, raise up other men in this nation that will preach the word of God faithfully and make it into a fire and a hammer that breaks in pieces like this passage describes. Look at 1 Timothy chapter 6. The passage we were just at, we're turning to 1 Timothy 6. Jeremiah 23, where we just were, shows that the Word of God is more sure than dreams. It's like comparing chaff to wheat. Chaff is the outer husk and shell of grain that can't be eaten. It's thrown away because it's refuse, it's garbage. It's landfill, it's a mulch bed stuff compared to the stuff that you want to grind up and turn into bread to feed your bodies. Back to bread again. I didn't mean to get on all this dietary information today. But what is the chaff to the wheat? If you're trying to make bread, are you going to make it a chaff? No way, you can't. But can you make it out of the grain? Yes, the real wheat, the wheat that counts, the inside kernel, the wheat germ, even inside the kernel of wheat. It's better. There's no comparison. It's more sure. 
First Timothy chapter 6 tells us that it's better than something else. Verse 20, O Timothy, keep that which is committed to thy trust. First Timothy 6.20, O Timothy, keep that which is committed to thy trust, avoiding profane and vain babblings and oppositions of science, falsely so called, which some professing have erred concerning the faith. Grace be with thee. Amen. The Bible's more sure than science. If there's a newspaper article, or you hear a teacher, or you watch a movie, or you watch a, a documentary, or you find something on the internet that says something that's contrary to the Bible, what do you do? They say, we're science, and you're only faith. We're greater than you are. We say, our faith is in the Creator God of heaven and earth, and your science is falsely so-called. Science is just a different word for knowledge. Isn't it interesting that in 1611 they had the word science in your Bible? And so along comes the science of evolution. And those of you that go to our public zoos have to go take Psychology 101. Ever been there, done that? See, that's another science that's totally contrary to the Bible. Kids, you can't beat them. What does the Bible say? Kids, you better beat them. You say, well, that sounds cruel. That's what the Bible says. Why don't you like it? Thou shalt beat him with the rod and shalt deliver his soul from hell. The only weakness my father ever had in dealing with me was he didn't beat me enough. He was a great dad. Paul, you would usually say amen. (laughs) That's the wisdom of the Bible. Science. What does the Bible say? The rod and reproof... Give wisdom, but a child left to himself bringeth his mother to shame. Why do some sons shame their mothers by the way they live? Because they weren't reproved, told they're wrong, and beaten with a rod. Proverbs twenty nine fifteen. The rod and reproof give wisdom, but a child left to himself bringeth his mother to shame. Oh, we believe it. We don't care what they say. They say capital punishment is no deterrent to murder. <laughs> Oh, if we would broadcast it, it would be. Mm-hmm. And let me tell you, I've never seen somebody put to death in a gas chamber that ever killed again. Boy, they let them out and they go kill again. I mean, well, how do you want to reason about it? You don't, there is no reasoning. The Word of God is right and they're totally wrong. Amen. Benjamin Spock in his child book that swept this country for 30 years, and then we find out about the suicides in his family, and before he died, he said, I was wrong. Right. And so many mothers swore by that stupid little paperback book that was sold everywhere you went when I was a child. This is the, this is the child training manual right here. Amen. Don't you think Solomon with a thousand wives and the kids they had needed some kind of a manual? You say, well, it didn't work out in his life because he didn't practice it the way he should have. He should have beat little Rehoboam a few more times so that Rehoboam wouldn't have been so foolish when he finally got the office. Consider baptism. Men have invented new designs, new purposes for it. They say it's necessary to be saved. They come up with new modes. They'll sprinkle and pour or rub a rub a thumb in it like a Catholic on your forehead. Then they do it to babies. Where'd they come up with all this stuff? The Word of God is more sure than anything. I don't care what the Pope of Rome says. I don't care how many cardinals or archbishops, bishops or priests he has. Do you? 
I don't care that he says we're the mother church. We've been around for 1,500 years. New Baptist started in 1609 with a man named John Smith spelled with a Y. I don't care what he says. We have the Word of God. It tells us everything we need to know about baptism. The Mormons come along and have baptism for the dead. Not only do they believe that it saves, but they have baptism for all your dead relatives that didn't get to meet Joe. Because salvation's by Joe instead of Jesus. Salvation's entirely by Jesus, not Joe Smith. Where does all this come from? They left the Word of God. We're never going to leave it. It's more sure on every subject. That's why I'm just trying to hit high points of every subject. God's Word is more sure. Period. But brethren, you need, we need teachers that will teach us. Philip met the Ethiopian eunuch who was reading Isaiah 53 in his bouncing chariot in Acts chapter 8 and verse 30. And Philip joins himself to the chariot and says, Understandest thou what thou readest? And the eunuch said, How shall I except some man guide me? And so we want to be thankful for that as well, that God raises up men to teach us the Word of God, teach us how to study it, teach us what the conveyed truth has been about interpreting passages of Scripture and applying them. And we're thankful for that. We're thankful. The Bible's going to teach us in Romans 10, as soon as we go back there, likely next Sunday, that this glorious gospel that is so different from the law of Moses can only be known by those that hear it. And they can only hear it if someone preaches it And they can only preach if they be sent from God, actually called by Him. And then then Paul just says, How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of them that preach the gospel of peace and bring glad tidings of good things. We need to have God's ministers. False ministers corrupt the Word of God. There were many in Paul's day that were already corrupting the Word of God. Faithful ministers preach it according to the full counsel of God and as faithfully as they're able. And, and much more, much more could be said on that, but I said it recently. I need to draw this to a close, but not yet. That just means I'm getting closer to close. Are you politically correct? Is that how you want to think? Do you want to be politically correct? You know, everybody wants so politically correct. We can't say certain things. You know, I've mentioned a name in this sermon already that probably some of you are a little nervous and you sweat a little bit more. But, you know... We don't want to be socially correct or politically correct. We want to be scripturally correct. And that man, and the Apostle Paul named men left and right. Do you want to know their names? Hymenaeus and Philetus were two men that he named that were guilty of denying the resurrection. Alexander the coppersmith did me much harm. John, you think he's the Apostle of love? In 3 John, he mentions Diotrephes, who loveth to have the preeminence among them. Men are named in the Bible as being culprits and corruptors of God's Word. That's all I did. When Christian scorners tell you that God doesn't care about details that are found in His Word, as long as your heart is right, do you believe them? You shouldn't believe them. You should remind them that the Word of God has some examples, like Nadab and Abihu. They were priests of God. They went to the right place to offer a sacrifice to the Lord. They just took the wrong kind of fire. They offered strange fire before the Lord, and so the Lord just burned them up on the spot. You say, well, that's just the cruel God of the Old Testament. God's never been cruel. Nadab and Abihu are cruel for worshiping Him differently than He told them to and wrote it down in the books of Moses. And on and on we could go because it's the Bible that's our basis for doing everything that we do. 
Why don't we have a steeple? Because the Bible doesn't tell us to have a steeple. And what the Bible does tell us is not to practice anything that the pagans practice. And if you want to know what a steeple is, you can look up two words. You can go home and look up steeple in a Google search box, or you can look up phallic. And I'll I'll spell it for you. P-H-A-L-L-I-C. And you can find out what a steeple's for. You're going to be disgusted. Your mommy won't be very happy if you're young and under the age and you're doing Google searches of phallic. But we're going to tell the truth. Why in the world do they take little buildings? Can you imagine the Apostle Paul walking into a church that has a a hundred-foot spire up there in the top of the building? What about creation? What if all the scientists in the world band together and outlaw creation to even be taught in our homes or churches? What are we going to keep teaching? Creation. Why? Because in the beginning God created. That's all we need. Take, Take away the rest of the Bible from me. If I got the first five words, I'm all set, and I don't care what you say or how many say it. Are you as convinced as I am of creation? Right. I, I know you are. That This is the more sure word. We believe everything it says. And we actually understand it. Through faith, we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God, so that things which are seen were not made of things which do appear. God made something out of nothing, and the things that you can see once didn't exist. Right. That's... And we understand it. Hebrews 11.3. Thank you, Lord. What about drinking wine? What if somebody says, shame, 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 you shouldn't drink wine. What does the Bible say? Jesus drank wine all the time. What was his nickname? A wine bibber. Why was he called a wine bibber? Because he drank wine on a regular basis like every Jew did, except for one man who didn't. John the Baptist. Jesus said that in Luke chapter 7, verses 34 through 35. Does the Bible recommend wine as part of your diet? Has medical science finally caught up and confirmed it in the last 50 years? That a glass of red wine every day has enough antioxidants in it and other factors that it will extend your life by six, extend your life a good percentage because of wine. God made oil to make the face of man to shine. In a dry climate, if you don't have oil in your diet, your face is not going to shine. You take two, Go home and take two vitamin E pills. Before you get to go to bed tonight, you're going to have extra oil on your face. Oil in your diet makes your face to shine in a dry climate. Bread makes strong the heart of man. Wine makes glad the heart of man. And so when the Bible says that, though we're Baptists, we're drinking Baptists. Now, drunkenness is absolutely condemned in the Bible, so we would never get drunk. We hate drunkenness. We hate even getting close to drunkenness. But Jesus drank wine all the time, and everybody in the Bible drank wine all the time because that was the chosen beverage of Israel. What does the Bible say about submissive wives in marriage? Is it it answered in the Scriptures? What about sodomy? Is it answered? Is it an abomination to God? Is it without natural affection? Is it abusers of themselves with mankind? Are those some of the choice words God has for what they call gay? Because what's the Bible is what we trust. What about slavery? Slavery is a horrible thing, and the world's much better off without it. Try the Bible sometimes. You know, slavery's talked about in both testaments throughout. And back when this state and other states believed the Bible, then slavery was practiced here and in other places. You say you're saying something that's just making my skin crawl. Why? You might be the slave. And listen, if he was a good master and had a big spread and let you ride horses when you were done in the cotton, trained your children, took you to church and taught you the gospel truth, might not be a bad setup. I'll leave him with all the worries. 
and I'll just work every day and have food every night. How about speaking evil of rulers? Should we make fun of President Obama? Does the Bible say not even in your bedroom should you say something and curse the king? Ecclesiastes 10.20 Does it say that you can add years to your life by honoring your mother and father? Ephesians 6, 2 and 3, the first commandment with promise. We believe those things. Which do you think works more? Eating according to the USDA? Or the health authorities of our nation is going to extend your life or honoring your parents? What do you think? Since the Bible doesn't have a word to say about diet extending anyone's life. Except it makes bread makes strong the heart of man. I'm just trying to think of it. doesn't say anything. But it does tell me that you'll live a long life if you'll honor your mother and father. When I go to the hospital and I see and I smell death, Sherry knows before I get to the car, I'm squeezing her saying, let's go straight to my parents so that I can take them out to eat or give them a hug and tell them I love them. That's the best way to stay out of this place. Because that's what the Bible says. You say, but surely diet has something to do with it. Prove it. Now you're going to need a Bible verse because I don't care what evidence you bring. Prove it. You know, I have a a mother-in-law who's 82 years old. She lives on cookies, chocolate, and ice cream. She's never raised her pulse rate above what happens in bed. Every time I'm on a treadmill with my wife, I look at her and I say, let's go home and try your mom's method. (laughs) She's 82 years old. She's never drank a bottle of distilled water in her life. She's never purged herself. She's never juiced herself. She's never given herself a coffee enema. She doesn't eat from GNC. She eats chocolate, ice cream, cookies. She's 82 and she's doing very well. Moderation in all things is what the answer would be from the Bible. Moderation in all things. The basis for marriage. What's the basis for marriage? The fear of the Lord. Amen. Beauty is vain, favor is deceitful, but a woman that feareth the Lord, she shall be praised. Oh, that verse by itself is worth a ton. How do we even put a price on Proverbs 31.30? Thank you, Lord, for that. Should we pay taxes? Of course we should. Jesus said, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. Does the Bible tell us that we shouldn't worship God, our God, Jehovah God, the Lord Jesus Christ, in any way that pagan religions have ever worshipped Him? Yes. So that's why we don't celebrate the holidays that everyone celebrates. Does the Bible tell us to play musical instruments in the New Testament? No, the Bible tells us to sing in the New Testament. So that's why we do it, because that's what the Bible says. What does the Bible say about our personal enemies? To love them and do good to them and pray for them and bless them. Matthew chapter 5, verses 43 through 48. Are you decis- can you decisively identify a false premise when you hear something? If you read or you hear, this mollusk evolved 100 billion years ago. How old might it be? 6,000. Because the earth is only 6,000 years ago. If you read somewhere, and it's going to be in Prevention Magazine or something like that, the body was designed to live to be 120. What are you going to say? 73. Where is that? Psalm 90. 
verses 10 through 12. Where are they stealing the words 120 from? Yet his days shall be 120 years. Genesis 6. What's under consideration there? There was 120 years until God was going to bring the flood on the earth. It has nothing to do with men's age because Noah lived to be over 600 at that time. It's ridiculous. If you read anything that the body was designed to live to be 120, the body was designed to live forever. The problem is we ate the fruit off the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and God put a flaming cherubim at the, gar- at the entrance to the garden so that we couldn't get our hands on the tree of life. The tree of life is in heaven, and you're going to be able to eat it and feed your glorified body and live forever. That's why it's called the tree of life. You, are you able to cut through all that fog? And I'm trying to give parents right now the things to say to your children so that no matter what they hear, there's an answer in the Bible. No, we don't live to be 120. We weren't designed for it. Is there global warming? Not until the Lord comes and burns everything up. Then the globe will be warmed. It'll melt with fervent heat, as the Bible describes. Until then, are seasons going to disappear? No. The Bible says plainly there will always be seasons, springtime and harvest, hot and cold. Man was created to be a vegetarian. You might hear that sometime. What happened as soon as Noah got off the ark? Noah... Look at all that stuff. See that squealing pig running over there? Go get it and make pepperoni for your next pizza. He was acquitted due to insanity. When you read that, what does that tell you? That this world is really sick. Somebody kills another person, then they're ruled insane, so we keep the insane one alive. He should have been killed simply for killing, but since he's insane, there's two reasons. In, In opposition to what they're saying, he's a threat to society. They, they, everything they reason about is, is upside down. Jesus wants us to live in peace. But Jesus said, I didn't come to bring peace. I came to bring a sword because the gospel is going to divide men and divide families and divide friends because the Lord's going to find out how much we truly love Him by seeing if we love Him more than our friends and more than our family. Can you see through euphemisms? If you hear someone talking about having an affair, what word are they afraid to use? Adultery. When they call it gay, what is it? Sodomy. It's an abomination with God. When it's called a one-night stand or casual sex or partying, euphemisms for whoremongering. Is it homosexuality or is it sodomy? It's sodomy and vile affections. Is it alcoholism? There's no such thing as alcoholism. There's drunkenness. Do you read a passage and submissively and eagerly grasp everything that's in it? If you read back there in, Matthew, in, in, in Genesis about Sarah calling Abraham Lord in her own thoughts, and you know that that's referenced in 1 Peter 3, 6, do you stop and you say, this wasn't just some formal title that she would flip out with, my Lord, my Lord, my Lord, my Lord, ad nauseum. She's actually talking about her husband Abraham as her Lord in her heart. I should stop and reflect on that. That is what God wants wives to do. That's why he mentions that in 1 Peter 3, 6, that they should have that kind of reverence as the holy women of God before, like Sarah had. Do you stop and, 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 and weigh every word of God? Because it's the more sure word. Amen. You say, well, I've got a better way. My husband and I are going to be buds. 
We're going to be friends. He's going to be my best friend. Cool. We'll see how long it works. I can tell you one thing. He'll never think that he's married to a woman like I have. I hope that you love the Word of God and every time you see something that's contrary to it, it, it enrages you because you want to defend God and His integrity and His Word. What should we do because we have the more sure word of prophecy? I hope you'll be prepared and ready to speak up like Elihu did in Job 32. Right. When you have an opportunity to say something, Proverbs 22, 17 through 21 describes it, that when you're asked a question, you shouldn't say, I think, I believe, maybe. You should say, these are the certain words of truth God said, the Bible says, and then be able to give an answer for the reason of the hope that is within you. We want to be able to answer men with the Word of God. And you know what? You're all carrying cell phones now. And if you have a Bible search program on your cell phone, if somebody asks you a question, you should just be go down there. You're all masters at texting. Just go down there. Text away. And, and I'm really envious. And pull up the Bible and get an answer for them. You've got tools that we haven't had before. In two years, you're all going to be talking to your little doodads instead of texting anyway. You're just going to say, give me that verse in the Bible about there is, uh, there is a spirit in man and the, and the Almighty giveth them inspiration. <laughs> There's Job 32. The, listen, we're getting all these benefits. Right. What is scary is that God has given us computer search programs. We should know the Bible better than anyone that ever came before us. Right. The ancient men on my shelves, and I have a few of them left, they sat there in the dark with a candle and a quill pen. And they hid it up here. Yep. They made their own concordance in their head. They made their own concordance on paper. We have Bible search programs. There is nothing to hold you back from being the Bible answer man. You take final exams in school to be the chemistry answer man. Three days later, you can't remember 70% of what you put on the test. But we want to hide the Word of God in our hearts Amen. and be able to give an answer. That's what we should do with it. You should want to learn it every day. You should hide it in your hearts that you'll sin not against God. The only way it can be your wisdom, your life, your good, and your righteousness is if you remember it. If I had expanded the reading of those three young men this morning to broader passages, there was a lot of emphasis there to hearken and take heed that you do not forget these words and these commandments and these statutes that I've commanded you. We need to pray that God will raise up more ministers that will be faithful to His Word. Yeah. You know, even dealing with the devil, the written Word of God was sufficient. The Lord Jesus Christ used it against Satan. We should hate vain thoughts and love Scripture. Right. That was a, a Wednesday night Bible study a number of months ago. I hate vain thoughts, but thy law do I love. Is that, does that describe you? I hate vain thoughts. Every empty thought of man that disagrees with the Bible, I hate it. And I love thy law because everything it says is true. That should describe you. And that's what you want to teach your children. How thankful are you for the Bible? God only reveals it to a minority on earth. It, Israel was the only nation on earth that had the Old Testament. Right. And it was the smallest of all nations. But it was the only one. You know, if you'd been raised in a Buddhist family, you would never encounter the Bible in any way that would encourage you to read it. If you were born in a Hindu family, you would never be 
you would never have an encounter with the Bible where you'd be encouraged to read it. And so little Hindus, big Hindus, beget little Hindus, and they become big Hindus, and so it's perpetuated. We're very blessed. You're very blessed, and you should thank the God of heaven that he made a choice in your life and the parents that you were born to that you would come in contact with his word, and you should be very thankful for it. If you neglect his word, the Bible says you despise yourself and love death. In Proverbs chapter 8 and verse 36, you should be happy and thrilled that you have something more sure than even being on the Mount of Transfiguration with Jesus. And because of that, David said, because he loved it so much, he's taken it to myself as a heritage forever. What is the heritage you have out of life? You know, Jerry said that he was thankful that he was created so that he could know God. But the next thing after knowing God and really how we know God is through His Word. We can be thankful that we're alive to know His Word and we can study it. You know, we live in a generation where Christians are turning away their ears from the truth to fables. We want to be those who hold to the truth of God's Word. There are women that are going to Bible studies and seminars, and 2 Timothy 3 describes them. They're called silly women. Not all women are silly. These are silly women laden with sins and divers' lusts, and they have false teachers creeping after them, creeping into houses and leading them captive. It says they're ever learning, but never able to come to a knowledge of the truth. If you go into a Christian bookstore, just stand at the door for one hour and just put M on a piece of paper, draw a line, put F, male, female, draw a line under the M and the F, and just start making stick numbers. Come to me and tell me after an hour in a Christian bookstore today who goes in there and buys the Christian books, and they know less and less and less of the truth of God's Word. You know, they're sending money over to Africa where kids have been starving to death ever since they got to Africa, and it's never going to change. Instead of humbling themselves before the sound doctrine of God's Word, when these women go look for a church, they want a church that has youth programs, children's programs, and a children's church in horrors that a church wouldn't even have a Sunday school where they can send Junior to have graham crackers and milk. And thus says the Bible. In 2 Timothy 3, we live in those times. We're living in the 402nd year of this Bible, and we should be very thankful for it. Now, brethren, because we had a little confusion here, and it's all my fault, and it's all my fault, and it's all my fault, you are going to have to endure three more passages of Scripture because these men are going to come and read to us right now. Mark, Daniel, Stephen. Come and read to us the word of God. And I'm sorry that out of order, but I won't hurt offend him. Trust the Lord for overruling my error. Come and read the word of God to us. And then we'll close. Matthew chapter 4. Matthew chapter 4, 1 through 11. The temptation of Jesus in the wilderness can also be called uh, Jesus rebuked the devil by the word. Matthew 4, 1. Then was Jesus led up of the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted of the devil. And when he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, he was afterward and hungry. And when the tempter came to him, he said, If thou be the Son of God, command that these stones be made bread. But he answered, he said, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God. Amen. Then the devil taketh him up into, a holy, into the holy city, and set him on a pinnacle of the temple. And saith unto him, If thou be the Son of God, cast thyself down. For it is written, He shall give his angels charge concerning thee, and in their hands they shall bear thee up, lest at any time thou dash thy foot against the stone. Jesus said unto him, It is written again, Thou shalt not tempt the Lord thy God. Amen. Again, the devil taketh him up into an exceeding high mountain, and showeth him all the kingdoms of the world, and the glory of them. And saith unto him, All these things will I give thee, if thou wilt fall down and worship me. Then saith Jesus unto him, Get thee hence, Satan. For it is written, Thou shalt worship the Lord thy God, and him only shalt thou serve. Amen. And the devil leadeth him, and behold, angels came and ministered unto him. Amen. Just a brief context around these passages before 
get to verse 16 where I'll be reading, we read another account of what, what Mark has read us of Jesus being tempted by Satan. Um, what we'll be reading here is Jesus reading out of Isaiah and giving an interpretation of it. Yeah. Well, I think that after he, after he re- reads it and they're amazed at his graciousness, which he presents this interpretation because he's talking about him, he then starts preaching about election, at which point they want to throw another request, so yeah. shows the depravity of fans. But anyway, verse 16. And he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up, and as his custom was, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and stood up for it to read. And there was delivered unto him the book of the prophet Isaiah. And when he had opened the book, he found the place where it is written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he hath anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He hath sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to preach deliverance to the captives, and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty them that are bruised, to preach the acceptable year of the Lord. He closed, and he closed the book, and gave it again to the minister, and sat down. And all the eyes of them that were in the synagogue were fastened upon him. And he began to say unto them, This day is the scripture fulfilled in your ears. And all bare him witness, and wondered at the gracious words which proceeded out of his mouth. And they said, Is this not Joseph's son? Amen. Jesus, whom I preach unto you, is Christ. And some of them believed, and consorted with Paul and Silas, and of the devout Greeks, a great multitude, and of the chief women, not a few. 